Well, welcome back to another episode of Help for Mothers, the podcast that helps mothers with health, education, love, and protection. I'm joined today by my co-host, Miss Keisha Zafino. Hello. You know I'm saying? Well, Keisha Chiappinelli is also your name. And we are very interested in maternal child health and helping find the path through the veritable landmine of corporate control and policy makers that are trying to create profit and this whole thing. We're looking to help moms put people first and that's a big part of what we are researching. Today is a really fascinating conversation. I'm so excited to be welcoming Dr. Paul Conant, who's a PhD in chemistry. And in his 32 years of research, he's focused on waste management, which led him to explore what is being dumped into water supplies. And so we get to have a great conversation about fluoride. And then we're also joined by Chris. And will you tell us about him? Yeah, I'm actually, or was, a member of the Fluoride Action Network when I lived in Montana. So I thought it was really cool that Chris is FAN's research director, Chris Naraf, and he really uncovers fascinating evidence about fluoride, that it's a developmental neurotoxin, just fascinating information. So really excited to have Chris here. No, I can't wait to jump into it. Well, let's welcome our guests. My name is Paul Collett. I'm a retired professor of chemistry. I specialized in environmental chemistry and toxicology. And I, my wife got me involved in the fluoridation issue in 1996. And uh, I didn't want the issue. I didn't want the issue, but as portrayed in the United States, People that get involved with fluoridation are supposed to be loony tunes, crazy people, flat earth society. And I didn't want that stigmatization. I was also incredibly busy on another issue, waste management. And just to put that in context, that issue since 1985 has taken me to 49 states in the United States and 69 other countries. So you can imagine before I retired, it was extremely difficult balancing the act of teaching chemistry at university level and be an activist on, on waste management. But since I retired in 2006, now it's a question of balancing the activist work against water fluoridation and the work against incineration and promoting zero waste. Now, as, wow. far, as far as my concerns, the thing that many chemists think, when they hear the word fluoride, and people getting upset with fluoride, they think, oh, those poor people have mixed up fluorine, the element, and fluoride, the compound. Now, the element fluorine is the most reactive element in the periodic table. It attacks asbestos. It attacks every other element in the table except two inert gases. And so if you were putting fluorine into the water, we'd be killing people. No. So for the chemist, Fluoride is not a very reactive substance. If you had a glass, a, a bottle of sodium fluoride, and you put it on the shelf, it would probably be there 100 years from now. It doesn't react with the air, it doesn't react with water, and so on. But, and here's the shocker, it's extremely active biologically. It's, it's really incompatible with biochemistry. And that is why nature has devised mechanisms for getting fluoride out of the body. If you go to bacteria and fungi, 
this is only recently they discovered this since 2012, there are pumps that pump fluoride out of the, the cells. Uh, knowing the nature knows that if you leave the fluoride in the cell, it will attack enzymes, proteins, and mess things up. We also know that there's not a single fluorine atom in any natural materials in the body. You can't find it in proteins, in membranes, in, in, in um, enzymes, nothing. And nature has not found a use for fluorine inside the chemical body. We do not need fluorine. So A, it's very toxic. B, uh, lower creatures have ways of getting rid of it. And then if you look at human beings, we have ways of getting rid of it. We have kidneys. And the kidney gets rid of about 50% of any fluoride that you take in each day. And that varies with age. Our kidneys tend to break down as you get older. Uh, and then the second line of defense. So the fluoride goes, if you get fluoride into your blood, absorbed from the stomach as you eat things, then the first thing that happens is the kidney gets rid of 50%. As the fluoride left in the blood continues to go around, then it's taken up by the hard tissues. It's taken up largely by the bone. It's sequestered in the bone. And that gets it out of circulation. And it doesn't allow it to get much into the soft tissues. Okay, so run the clock forward from 1996 when I first got involved. And the shocker is that whilst the human breast protects the baby from fluoride, there's this very, very little fluoride naturally in mother's milk, thank goodness. But if you bottle feed, your baby's gonna get about 200 times more fluoride than nature intended, okay. That's the because of that mixing it with water thing yeah, that you yeah, have to do. Yeah. You make up the formula with tap water and your tap water is fluoridated. That's the, the good news. The bad news is the placental membrane does not keep fluoride away from the fetus. And now, it just recently as 2017, we're finding out why that is such a huge problem. Because there are studies now have been done first in Mexico City and now in Canada, which shows a very strong relationship between the amount of fluoride that pregnant women are exposed to and lowered IQ in their children. And oh, the, that's really profound. Oh, is that And true? it's so it's, important it's, to share. I'd love to um, link those articles um, or those studies in our show notes. Um, would you send those to me so I can share them? And I think also I see Chris is here. Okay, good, 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 good. So yep. there's our address, okay? Uh, there's our address, fluoridealert.org. Please note that fluoride is spelled U-O, okay. not O-U. Think of okay. flu, so fluoridealert.org. Okay. And when you go to our screen, you'll find 10 revolving mastheads. And okay. these are question and answers about our lawsuit. We're talking about the, the lawsuit we've taken out on fluoride. So this is more about the fluoride lawsuit. We'll talk some more about that because it's very significant. And this is a video presentation by Chris Neurath. Now, Chris has just joined us. But in this video presentation, it explains all about what we're talking about tonight. This is the first study. The study I've just been talking about is the Bashash study, 2015. Okay. 
And then this is the this is the replication of that study by Green in 2019 from Canada. And then this is another study from Canada which shows a relationship between pregnant women's exposure and increased ADHD symptoms. And then finally, here's a bottle feeding study. And that study was remarkable. It showed that the diff, if you comparing two sets of children, for those children who were bottle fed in a Floridated community, compared to those children who were bottle fed in a non-fluoridated community. So that's the only difference, whether the baby got fluoride with the formula or no fluoride with the formula. That was the difference. Nine IQ point difference. A low wow. IQ points difference. So this is, this is among four, I, we, we say real four bombshell studies and they're all explained and linked on our website. So then anybody's got a, a couple of hours to spend can get all the information on these critical studies. And that, wow. that's one. Stage two is that these four critical studies were the basic plank of our lawsuit against the United States Environmental Protection Agency in which we are suing the EPA to stop allowing the deliberate addition of fluoride to the drinking water because of its potential neurotoxic damage to the fetus and to the infant. And we're, wow. we're, we nearly completed that trial. And so far, we're doing very, very well. Well, we've had the top, top neurotoxic experts in the world, some of which actually wrote these papers. We're talking about- That's amazing. Philippe Grandjean. Grandjean, sorry, Grandjean. We're talking about Bruce Lamphere. We're talking about Howard Hugh. He was the author, the lead researcher of the Bashash study. And Bruce Lamphere was a cr critical researcher in the Green study. And Philip Grandjean has written a, a tremendous review article of all these, um, these studies. And they testified for us. And, and the EPA, with no science to speak of. There isn't much science on the other side saying here are these wonderful studies which show yeah. there's no problem. And I should point out that these studies that I'm talking about were funded by the National Institute of Health. And so you could imagine the rigorous efforts they had to go through before the NIH gave them millions of dollars to perform these studies. The, the Mexican City study was 12 years in the making. And so these are very expensive cohort studies, the best studies, the most rigorous studies that you can do in epidemiology. And yeah. so, and, and the, the EPA was reduced to using consultant scientists from Exponent. And Exponent is a company that serves the chemical industry. It's, 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 Test, they testify on behalf of Monsanto, on behalf of DuPont, on behalf of Dow. Anything that's nasty and toxic, they defend. Oh. And, and they tried oh. to do it with fluoride, but they didn't do a very good job. Well, thank goodness for that. Well, there's so much to get into here. You are obviously, Paul, a lifetime expert and a wealth of information. Let's go on and introduce Chris. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Can you hear me okay? I can. Thank you so much. Okay. Chris is very modest. 
but uh, he's the real, <laughs> he, he's the real brain. He's the brain. Sometimes I'm the mouth. I'm got a big mouth. Chris, Chris is the brain. You should tap into the brain. Well, that's exactly what we hope to do today. Chris, will you introduce yourself? Who are you and where are you and why does this matter? I'm Chris Neurath. I'm uh, in the Boston area. I'm very excited to be with you on a podcast for midwives and for pregnant women interested in a healthy pregnancy and, and having healthy children. Because with this issue about fluoride and fluoridation, it really is, uh, has come down to the science of what happens to uh, pregnant women, the, the fetus and the infant when they're exposed to fluoride. For years, people had been working on other health side effects, you could call it a fluoridation, which, were, which are serious in themselves. But in the last three years, the studies, very high quality studies are uh, amazing, overwhelming evidence now, I, I believe, and I've looked at them all very carefully, that fluoride is indeed neurotoxic to the developing brain. It does lower the IQ, water fluoridation, by an average of several points. And what's important to understand about that, a few points you would never see in an individual. You would never know what, you know, the difference between somebody who would normally have an IQ of 103 and one who has an IQ of 100. But that's a population average. And several studies now have found that some people, their particular genotype, just variations that everybody has variations in their genes, are much more sensitive to this loss of IQ and, and other harm, neurotoxic harm. And it's found from a single gene variant, a five times greater loss of IQ. So if the average loss in a population is three IQ points, a child with this variant might have five times that much, 15 IQ points. And so when you're looking at the entire population, not only will those individuals be you know, very clearly harmed, but society is taking a big hit. Um, wow. There will be many more children who will fall into a range where, you know, they're going to need, they're going to have special needs education. Some may be, you know, seriously, I mean, they, they would end up below 70 is, is the IQ that's sort of conventionally considered mentally handicapped. The, the, the terms keep changing, but yeah. definitely need remediation. So that's what, what I'm interested in. And yeah. what I've become much more concerned, I've been working on this not nearly as well, at least 15, maybe 20 years. I don't even know how long it's been that fall. In the last three years, when these stronger and stronger and new and more and more studies on the neurotoxicity have come out, it has really galvanized my feelings about the science is now much too strong. And unfortunately, the proponents of fluoridation which includes a lot of pediatricians who have just accepted what the dentists have say. Yeah. They, they have their head in the sand. They don't want to, they don't want to look at this evidence or they, they dismiss it with flippant arguments and they don't actually read the studies. They don't try to understand. Yeah. And I, I'm amazed that now that the, the evidence is becoming 
overwhelming, I think, even to some of the most ardent fluoridation promoters. Some are starting to float this idea, well, let's balance the dental benefits against the IQ loss, which is crazy. Now, you, you can get the benefits of fluoride without swallowing it. And actually, most of the benefits are from, it's just, top, it's called topical. The contact with the enamel, it uh, alters the, the demineralization that the caries attack from the bacteria, make acid and things like that. You can get that from brushing your teeth with fluoridated toothbrush. You don't have to swallow it at all. And in fact, the swallowed fluoride has very little benefit. It's, it's really just the contact with your teeth that matters. So right, it's that, such a controversial a, issue though. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it, there's any reason for it to be controversial. Like you said, like you can balance the loss of IQ points with potential yeah. white teeth. It's kind of crazy. Well, so it's been sort of at the center and the forefront of, of modern dentistry for a hundred years. Back in the early 1900s was this whole Colorado Springs study around the safety or the, the need for it. And then it became what many journals called moved modern dentistry to becoming a, the forefront of preventable health. How did that get started? Do you guys know about the history? Can you share with us? Like, where did that take off? What political aim did that solve? And who was behind that, that moving modern dentistry into preventative medicine by changing the nation's water supply? Do you want me to try to give that really briefly? Or Paul, do you sure. want to try that? Yes. Where did this start? This is the history in a nutshell. The, the issue began, as you rightly said, with a concern about what we now call dental fluorosis. Dentists were puzzled by these markings of the teeth that they found in Colorado and Texas. And it took a long time to find out what was causing that. It was 1931 when they found that what was causing this was fluoride in the water. But meanwhile, some of the dentists that were involved in the research felt that there was less tooth decay in the communities that were where the children were getting this dent, what we now call dental fluorosis. And then a fellow called H. Trenley Dean did surveys in the United States and came up in 1942 with this 21 city study. Why he settled on 21 cities instead of the hundreds for which he had data is questionable. But in this 21 studies, he, he tried to show that as the fluoride levels in the drinking water went up, the amount of tooth decay in the children was coming down. But dental fluorosis was not going up too much. And he felt that about one part per million was a, a good balance. It was a good balance between not having too many of the kids getting dental fluorosis, but some of them, many of them with reduced tooth decay. That was the trade-off. One part per million, the magic number, one part per million. Run the clock forward today, and in the United States, at least 40% of our adolescents now have dental fluorosis because we're now getting fluoride from everywhere. The problem today is kids are getting too much fluoride, not too little fluoride. So, uh, starting in 1945, they had some trials. They had some trials in the United States and Canada. And before those trials were completed, they were so excited with the results or what they thought were the results that in 1950, 
before any of them had been completed, the US Public Health Service endorsed fluoridation. No science on the table, no good, really significant evidence of, of reduced tooth decay. The epidemiology was very poor by modern standards, nor had they got any significant health studies, and yet this was launched. Now, here's the problem. The US Public Health Service is the money. This is where you get money from, uh, the, the, the part of the National Institutes of Health. This is the money giver. And this development of a promotion of fluoridation coincided with the building of the National Institute of Dental Research, a huge building of Bethesda, Maryland. This means that dental research now was on the same level as medical research. This was a source of big money going into dentistry. It was also a big source of pride to dentists. This was their contribution as they saw it to health, to, to public health. Within a couple of years, nearly every public health, dental and medical association in the United States had endorsed fluoridation, still with no significant science on the table. And what you saw from about 1955 onwards was a petrification of this policy. They switched from at least a superficial interest in seeing if there was any damage being caused, so they, they decided there weren't, there wasn't any damage, to outright promotion. And that's the problem. It became a policy which they have now defended vigorously since 19, 1950, essentially. And it's very, very difficult to overthrow a policy in a bureaucracy. You know, the people in the middle know that if they cause waves, they don't get promoted, they don't get their, you know, they risk losing their jobs, they risk losing their pensions. So you go along to get along is, is, is the phrase. You, the, you don't challenge policy, you promote policy. If you challenge it, you're, you're in danger. That's unfortunate. Those are the people in the middle. The people at the top of these agencies are usually political appointments. They know exactly what the government wants from them. Now, the people at the bottom, your rank and file dentists, were taught only one thing at dental school, that fluoridation was two things at dental school. Fluoridation was the best thing since sliced bread, number one. And number two, the people opposed to fluoridation, a bunch of looney tunes, emotional crazy crackpots, and you don't have to listen to them. You don't have to read anything. And if you're a busy dentist and you're starting up a practice and so on, you don't have time to research every issue in your profession. The same with, with doctors and for many dentists and doctors. This isn't a big issue for them, but it is a big issue for the heads of these bureaucracies, the people in charge of the American Dental Association, American Public Health Association, American Medical Association, all and, and the comparable agencies in Australia have adopted this like a religion. It's something that you believe in and you have heretics. <laughs> Just in the church has heretics. I'm a heretic. Chris is, is a heretic in this system. Australia is the worst. I've got to tell you, the, the, the entities in Australia that are supposed to be doing the research uh, and the, those professional bodies like the, America, the Australian Dental Association, Australian Medical Association, are 
absolutely awful. I've been to Australia about 15 times and every time I challenge these people to debate and they won't debate. The head of the Australian Dental Association of Victoria, this is many years ago, I challenged them to debate and it was a very interesting response that they gave, uh, which it was honest. They said, I don't feel I know enough about this issue to debate Dr. Conant. And I thought, well, that's honest of you to say that, but don't you recognize a problem here? If you don't know enough to debate this issue with me, then how do you feel that you haven't know enough to go on a public platform and say everything is hunky-dory, which is just what they've been doing now in Australia since about 1960. And the other thing which is an crazy. crazy. You've got two more disasters in Australia and then I'll let Chris take over. Okay. Two more disasters in Australia. One is the Murdoch press that uh, hook, line and sink are promoting this crap. And then the other thing is the National Health and Medical Research Council. They are part of the federal government and they are part, believe it or not, of promoting and defending fluoridation. And every so often they produce a review and it's junk science, but everybody thinks it's absolutely the last word. So each state health minister says, well, the National Health and Medical Research Council has looked at this issue in enormous detail and they say it's safe and effective, safe and effective. And so this rubbish gets regurgitated from these professional bodies, from the NHMRC and the Murdoch Press, and everybody in Australia is walking around thinking that we're crackpots, not reading the science. And that's all we want is, is a level playing field. But there is good news. There's two good pieces of news if you want a level playing field on this issue. Two. The first one is in 2016, FAN asked the National Toxicology Program in the United States which re reviews toxicology for the FDA, CDC, EPA, top-notch body, to do a systematic review of the neurotoxicity of fluoride, looking at all the animal studies and all the human studies. And they came back after three years with a draft, draft um, review statement to the effect that fluoride was a presumed neurotoxicant are presumed based upon the science. In other words, a victory for us, but we're still waiting for the final copy that should be coming out this year. That is a major thing to have this national body do an objective review of the science and come out essentially on our side. The second thing is uh, we have a federal lawsuit. We've taken out a lawsuit against the EPA we petitioned the EPA and they rejected our petition. Our petition is they must stop allowing. The EPA is allowed to ban any specific use of a chemical substance if it poses a threat either to the general population or a subpopulation. And we said fluoridation poses a threat to the nursing infant and, the, um, and to the fetus. And We've had that lawsuit now, we're close to the end. The results should be coming out towards the end of this year, we think. But what we've heard so far from the judge is extremely encouraging. And I think that's probably a good place to go back to, to Chris. 
Well, yeah. And I would, I want to jump in here. I mean, I, I have a degree in public health and I'm fascinated about what you're saying. And my co-host here, Keisha is an attorney who, who specializes in maternal child health. And I, 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 we're talking about this. It's like perfect timing. It's the perfect topic for us. We love what you have to share. So thank you. And I, I, Keisha, I know you have a question or two, but I definitely have a question. Like, I love your point, Chris, about how hard it is to change policy and or or Paul about when you're in an organization, you can't really be a whistleblower. When you're the outside, they've discredited you ahead of time. When you're a mom, you're just a mom. How could you know the science? And so it's like this perfect setup to keep policy as is. But these new studies that have come out are changing it. Now your lawsuit is changing it. And one of the problems is this over-fluoridization. So two questions. One is, will you tell us where everyone's getting fluoride from? I mean, I think it's implicit, but it's in the water, I think is what you're going to say. And most of the country has agreed to this fluoridization policies. And so one is like, how do families, how do moms find out where and if their community has it? And how do they avoid less exposure? And how do they say no to certain treatments or whatever. So one is, where is it? And then the other question is, what is the next step? Like if you're successful with this lawsuit, if these studies get a little more traction, what's the next step? What's the end game for this advocacy work you're doing? And either of you, well, whatever. I'll um, answer your first question about okay. where do you get fluoride exposure from? Um, and it, it goes a little bit to the previous question about how did we get here in the first place? And there's a very important point. Most of the world does not add fluoride to drinking water. This is something that is a very, uh, I'd, I'd say the United States is the world leader in promoting it. And they have convinced several other countries and they are Canada, Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand to go along with it. The rest of Europe, absolutely no fluoridation in any other European country. They, they, they tried it. There were a few experiments. But currently, if you look at all of Europe, only 3% is fluoridated. Oh, England. I, I didn't mention England. And then you go everywhere else in the world. Now, uh, South America, they have some fluoridation, and they started fluoridating salt there as well. It's, but it's important to understand that many countries, including developed countries, basically re rejected the idea that this was something worth doing for public health, dental health. And many of them did it explicitly because they didn't think uh, it was safe enough, and they didn't think it was effective enough. And the basic ethical principle of adding a drug to the drinking water, uh, they, they recognized that you just can't do that. As far as in the United States, now, Augustine, are, are you in the United States? I, I'm, I'm not, but I am okay. American. Okay. Let, me, let me answer the question from the yeah. Australian point of view. Nearly every state in Australia has essentially mandatory fluoridation. Victoria is mandatory. I think Tasmania is. Uh, Western Australia is, is very, yeah, it's almost mandatory. The only standout state is Queensland. Queensland still retains just a wee bit of democracy. It still allowed the local community 
is still allowed to make this decision. The mayor and the council can hear people from both sides and then make a decision. They tried to make it mandatory in Queensland. It lasted for a couple of years before they got a new prime minister. And, and the, one of the first things the new prime minister did was to stop the mandatory nature of it. But if you're living in Australia, the chances are about 90%, I would say. Australia is the most fluoridated country in the world. So most of your fluoride is coming you're going to get it from drinking water. Not if you yeah. drink rainwater. If you drink rainwater or bottled water, you probably can avoid it. But in addition to that, of course, you get fluoride from toothpaste if you swallow it. And there's certain foods. Any food that you eat that has bones in it, be watch out because the fluoride concentrates in the bone, chicken bones, beef and uh, the bones. So it, try not to eat mechanically deboned meat because the mechanically deboning leaves little chips of bone in there. Then things like sardines and pilchards, fish that often the bones are very soft and you eat, eat those. And then another big source of fluoride is tea drinking. Both green tea and black tea um, are grown in areas with high fluoride and the tea plant, it does suck up the, the fluoride. So be very careful. F coffee, no. Um, so I always suggest, well, I'm a big tea drinker, so what I suggest is you mix it. You, you don't have, you know, in English, you want a nice cup of tea, dear, and you drink tea all day long. Um, no, tea now, and then next time a cup of coffee, or even hot water. It, it apparently yeah. <laughs> a little lemon water. Yeah, there, well, we so there we go. There we go. What's, what's, the, what's the goal? What's the end goal? If we see your advocacy efforts be successful, how do we change public policy? I mean, I, I know you guys are, are asking yourselves this question all the time. Well, well I, I would, can, I, can I throw in something? Being as this podcast is directed towards midwives, pregnant women, we don't have to change policy to get the message to them. And uh, that pregnancy and early infancy are, appear to be the critical periods where you really want to avoid fluoride. It may be that once children are, you know, grown up, older, it's not as much of a concern. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's a good thing to do for other reasons, but the critical period is, is uh, uh, fetal life. And what's, what I find to be a breakthrough is that the editors of the Journal of the American Medical Association, Pediatrics, after they accepted and published one of the strongest studies, this is one from Canada that found IQ loss in children living in fluoridated areas, they, they did an unprecedented thing. They had a accompanying editorial and a podcast <laughs> where they talk about this study and they say, we, they were totally blew them away. They had always been taught that anybody who criticized fluoride was a kook and that everybody in the world did it. And after they had accepted and, and very carefully reviewed this study, I mean, much more thorough review than they give other studies, their summary conclusion was they would advise their pregnant patients not to drink fluoridated water, to avoid fluoride. The, the lead editor even said, if my wife was pregnant, I would tell her not to drink fluoridated water. And so that means essentially buying bottled water? All right. Like so there's, 
that's the the one way. Most bottled water has low fluoride. You, you have to check some. Some has some is essentially fluoridated, uh, but usually you can contact the manufacturer and they'll tell you. Um, the other way is special filters. Uh, ordinary filters like a British Brita filter will not remove fluoride. Reverse osmosis is is the only real reliable way. There's a few other specialized filters. They can cost hundreds of dollars though. So bottled water. Some Paul goes to a spring <laughs> near his near his house and fills yep. up big bottles. <laughs> but yeah. but these are. You know, if you're a pregnant woman, you don't want to have to deal with more work. You know, there's plenty of other things. So uh, probably bottled water is what it, what it means. Um, and it, we have tried campaigns to have the WIC program pay for bottled water, and they won't. I think you're allowed, food stamps, you're allowed to buy water, but the WIC program will not cover bottled water. And so, so that is uh, you know it, don't get it, me started on yeah, wick i just well, want to say this <laughs> i know love it yeah i'm gonna go down a small a short rabbit hole i am an ibclc so an international board certified lactation consultant and one of the first jobs that i applied for when i moved back to arkansas from puerto rico was to be um, a breastfeeding counselor counselor yeah WIC. And you know that I was denied the job because I was never on, never on any sort of welfare program. I had never received, I had never been a recipient of, you know, they call it SNAP now, yeah. but you know, food stamps. And I was denied the job. Wow. That's wow. so that fascinating. Is, this that, was just yeah. a couple years like, ago. Oh, Keisha, that's like a conspiracy level kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because that, well, that controls the information. That way the information can never be what they didn't receive themselves. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Right. This is wow. A, I think this is a good moment to introduce the whole issue of equity. What yeah. the promoters use very effectively is that we have to fluoridate the water to help children from families of low income because those families of low income in the United States cannot afford uh, dental care. And, they, and, and about 80% of dentists in the United States will not provide services under Medicaid. Now, the counter argument, of course, in my view, is that children from low income, the last thing you want to happen to those children of low income is to lower their IQ. So this is an equity, number one, the fact that it, you're, you've trapped a community to drink this water because they can't afford reverse osmosis or, or what have you. You've trapped this community and they are the, the last ones who need to have their IQ lowered. So in terms of equity, it's a good intention, but it's gone awry. It's so sad because we can't get dentists and doctors to realize that. If you are really interested in the welfare of low-income families, stop fluoridation and stop it now. And, and I'd also add, there is a, what's shown to be a very effective alternative in Scotland, they don't fluoridate. And there was a huge battle over a huge court case, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago about it. Whereas England does. And England 
doesn't have only has about 10% of its population fluoridated, but there the government and the public health service are promoting it heavily and Ireland has fluoridation. So the Scottish decided, no, we don't want to. And they decided, but they had a lot, a lot of poor kids, bad teeth. And so they started an alternative program, which uh, uh, when you think about it, it was obvious. They had daycare centers, preschools, all do tooth brushing programs, essentially, yeah, you know, dental education, oral hygiene. Every day, the, and the kids would, you know, the, the teachers would say, all right, we're brushing our teeth today. And they would, you know, instruct the kids on how to brush their teeth. That has proven to be incredibly effective. The, the, the improvement in the, the dental decay in Scotland's kids has been greater than what anything found in England where they fluoridated. So, it, you know, as a public health measure, it's also affordable. But on a personal measure, anybody can just do that themselves. Just, you know, start early, start young. And, and there's been scientific studies of this, that, that starting with the parents at birth, you know, that, that come in for a dental consult before the child even has their first teeth, or they get, start getting their first teeth around six months, come in then, have a dentist or dental hygienist explain, this is how you brush their teeth, you know, and do this and um, and then follow-ups and it, you don't doesn't have to be an expensive dentist it could be a you know a, a nurse that can do this education i can add to that because my wife and i actually visited the headquarters of this program in glasgow oh, cool. the university cool. hospital in glasgow and it isn't just teaching about how to brush your teeth but also better diet and it is what Chris has just alluded to, access to the parents, which is the big money saver here. Because the big, um, the huge fraction of the amount of money that's spent on children's teeth for children under five is extractions under anesthetic for baby bottle tooth decay. And baby bottle tooth decay, as you probably know, is because babies are allowed to suck on bottles for hours on end, sugared water, orange juice, uh, milk, even Coca-Cola. And it is very easy to spot because the top teeth are rotted to the gum, but the bottom teeth are protected in this, this application, on this delivery system. So you can tell baby bottle tooth decay. If you have access to the parents early on, as Chris has said, you can warn them about not allowing their kids to suck on these bottles for hours on end. And this is why the, the smile for what's it called? Smile Child smile. Child, Child smile. smile program in Scotland is saving so much money for the Scottish authorities, even though they're going crazy with the education and the services, they're saving money because they're not spending all this money extracting baby teeth under anesthetic. Well, wow. it's not just that that, that that works. It's also working on just normal decay. It's been proved very effective and it yeah. doesn't cost a lot of money. I mean, they're in the, most kids are in daycare anyways. The working parents are everywhere. It's five minutes, you know, a day, maybe 10 minutes a day in the, you know, uh, out of their curriculum of, you know, whatever else they're doing, but it, it works. They should um, track awesome. the decrease in ear infections as well and all of these other things that occur yep. and yeah. speech development problems, problems with the palate, it, 
you know, the list yep. goes on and on. And I don't know why medical professionals don't have these conversations from the very beginning, because you can, if we care about children, we can kill, you know, a lot of birds with, you yep. know, one stone. Well, I want to correct think... something. Let me correct something. Go ahead, this Go is ahead very Chris. Very important. You said that milk can cause baby bottle tooth decay. And with our audience of lactation consultants and midwives, that is a very important question. And I've talked with Dr. <laughs> Hardy Leinbeck, who is, was the head of preventive dentistry in Tor University of Toronto and a leading dental researcher. He's, he's done a, uh, written a textbook on, on dental stuff. And I've asked him this question and he says, the studies are not very clear that milk can cause bottle, bottle baby tooth decay. Um, and certainly not water. breast milk is no, what we know to be true. Yes. Right. Now, when we're I putting lactose-filled cow's milk in bottles, that's very different than we're using the human milk, which has galactose. But well, Keisha is our resident expert on that. And formula is totally different than human breast milk. They, they pump right. that with uh, corn syrup, basically. Right. There's another issue which joins the science with the politics here and the history. Um, one of the big, big savings, why this is such a good investment, is if you invest in changing children's diets, the baby's diet, if you get them into the habits of not consuming as much sugar and drinking these soft drinks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then you're going to reduce the incidence of obesity and diabetes. And if you in any way are able to reduce the epidemic of diabetes in our Western world, that's going to save the health authorities an enormous amount of money. That's the science. Now the politics. One year before the U.S. Public Health Service mysteriously endorsed fluoridation, with none of the studies completed, the sugar lobby, that was a lot called the Sugar Research Foundation, representing 130 sugar interests from cornflakes to candies to cookies, said in their newsletter, we need to find a way to reduce tooth decay without reducing sugar consumption. And the sugar industry has been all the way promoting fluoridation and still does today. So it's a, there are interests. It's not as if they cause fluoridation, but they have had an interest in deflecting the population and the research community from researching the issue of sugars, bad effects in diet, and also bad effects, of course, on, on tooth decay. And, um, and there's I, always something like that. Thank you for pointing that out, Paul. That's excellent. Yeah. And Keisha. I have a question that I've actually always, always wondered about fluoride. And it's similar. Um, I always look for the common thread, which in my opinion is money, right? Follow the money. So to actually get the fluoride into the water, I don't know the mechanism by which it happens, but who stands to profit from that? That has to be an actual industry. This is, this is a great, great question. It's the phosphate fertilizer industry. It was the aluminum industry, but no more. It's the phosphate fertilizer industry. And let me explain exactly why. When you extract soluble phosphate from phosphate rock, which is insoluble in water, so you can't use it directly in agriculture, you have to solubilize the phosphate. And they do that by adding concentrated sulfuric acid to the phosphate rock. That reacts with contaminants in the rock 
to produce two nasty, very toxic gases called silicon tetrafluoride, SIF4, silicon tetrafluoride, and hydrogen fluoride. Now, that went on for many, many years before the industry was forced to put wet scrubbers, a spray of water, to capture these toxic gases. The end result of that capture is the, is the liquor, which is called hexafluorosilicic acid, H2SIF6, a very concentrated hexafluorosilicic acid. They can't dump that into the sea by international law. They can't dump it locally because it would require an enormous amount of water to dilute. But here's one of the vagaries of the chemical industry in the United States. If a chemical industry can find somebody to buy a hazardous waste, then it no longer is classified as a hazardous waste. It's classified as a product. And therefore, you can sell it to anybody who wants to buy it. In the United States, the people that buy it are the public water supply. And guess what? They've got lots and lots of water to dilute this hexafluorosilicic acid before it goes eventually back into the sea. Can you see the irony here? You can't dump it directly into the sea, but you can filter it through our bodies and eventually into rivers and streams, and it will end up in in the ocean not oh you can't make this up this is no, like no, a it's, script it's, it's true it's true and the dentists don't believe this by the way in fact we interviewed hardy lineback the 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 top dental researcher in canada that chris alluded to just a moment ago and we when we said to hardy i said well what do dentists say when you tell them that the chemical they're using to fluoridate is not the pharmaceutical gray that you put into toothpaste, but this hazardous waste product from the phosphate fertilizer. It's just they don't believe me. They don't believe me. Um, and he says, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. But when he found out, to his credit, when Hardy Lineback found out two things, that the chemical being used was this hexafluorosilicic acid, number one, and number two, that it was contaminated with arsenic and lead, even radioactive nucleides, that's when he said, no, this is ridiculous. Mm. Well, so where, where is the fluoride action in Erin Brockovich, right? That's, that's what we need. We need that person. <laughs> she is against fluoridation, actually. She's had public meetings. She's been on television, spoken out against fluoridation. She sees she was on, on, on on Dr. Like the Oz. actual Erin Brockovich is what you're saying. The, the actual Erin <laughs> Brockovich has been uh, active against fluoridation. I mean, not, not full time. She's busy with other things. She went on Dr. Oz and talked about it. That's um, amazing. And, and she's worked, uh, we, we, she's helped with communities that have been poisoned by fluoride from the phosphate fertilizer industry, you know, the direct pollution. Right. Down the downstream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wow. Well, so this is, is fascinating. I'm sure we could go a lot deeper. I'm sure both of you gentlemen have loads more information. But to wrap up today, um, we always like to end our conversations focusing back on our consumer, on our audience, and saying, you know, this podcast is called Help for Mothers, specifically because we want to help mothers. And help, of course, stands for health, education, love, and protection. So um, could, could you guys give our listeners some health education, love, protection, as we try to imagine preventing 
the reduction of IQ and, and helping mothers and their, their babies be healthier? What, what's, what can they do? What's the first thing they can do? I'm going to try to keep this very simple. Don't drink fluoridated water. You can find out if it's fluoridated if you don't know by simply calling your water utility, the, the, you know, the public water system. If you're on a private well, it's probably not. And about 70% of people in the United States do have fluoridated water. Most beverages, bottled beverages, are fluoridated because most of them are bottled in a factory that uses the municipal water. They might filter it a little bit, but they don't get the fluoride out. So... Don't drink the fluoridated water. You're going to have to buy bottled water or find a filter, such as a reverse osmosis filter that can remove it. Tea. Do not drink a lot of tea during pregnancy. Very high source. It, it can have a, cup, a cup of tea can have as much as a liter of water, of, of fluoride in it. So a few cups of tea a day will give you more than drinking fluoridated water. The same for, for if, you're, if you end up formula feeding your infant, obviously you should be breastfeeding if possible. But if you do, do not make it up with fluoridated water. Use bottled water, um, low fluoride water. Very simple. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. Paul, do you want to add to it? Yeah, I would add uh, just this. The overarching issue is you need a healthy diet to produce healthy people. And unfortunately, I think the two big problems with modern medicine is that in medical school, there's not enough attention to diet, to what you need. They learn everything. You know, they start with organic chemistry, biochemistry, physiology. So they are taught how the body works, but they're not taught enough about how to keep that body in, in good shape with a healthy diet, what minerals you need, what foods you need to get the, the minerals. And all the time, our television is blasting in this junk food with too much sugar and, and so on. So you, uh, a mother has to learn all about that, but doctors should be helping them. Prevention. And the second thing is that doctors don't learn enough about uh, environmental toxicology about the substances that are out there that can hurt you that you need to avoid. Um, some of them they know. They know lead. They know arsenic. Uh, they know mercury by now, I would hope. But obviously, with this discussion, they don't know about the dangers of fluoride. And they need better education on environmental toxicology. Well, and your website can be a huge source of education, and that's the Fluoride Action Network, correct? Yeah, the, the web address is Fluoride Alert, A-L-E-R-T, FluorideAlert.org. The only thing you've got to master is the spelling of fluoride. It's F-L-U. And when you get to that website, there are 10 revolving mastheads, which give you all the details, probably more details than you ever wanted on all the stuff we've been talking about on neurotoxicity of fluoride. Well, we're going to share that in our notes. Thank you. Thank you both so much for going in depth with us and helping moms make the best choices for themselves and their babies. Avoiding fluoride is the end goal there. And we can do that by filtering with reverse osmosis, you said or purchasing water that's not fluoridated. And of course, call your local municipal center to find out if your water is fluorinated. And Keisha, and, yeah. Yeah, and if anybody wants to take a trip to Hot Springs, Arkansas to fill up your water, 
I will gladly go with you um, <laughs> at any time. It is the best water in the world. Yes. I yeah. love it. And I, I lived in Oregon for a long time and there's a, a lot of springs in Northern California and Southern Oregon where people go and fill up their jugs every week. And certainly if that's your routine, you're doing it for lots of reasons and avoiding fluoride is one of them. Thank you both so, so much. Can I make one more suggestion before we go? Please. May I suggest that you get that podcast that Chris talked about, that um, the, the editors of Pediatrics had this 20-minute podcast. If you, I think this would be a tremendous follow-up to broadcast that podcast. Yes, we will definitely share that for sure. Thank you for that. There are excerpts of it in my PowerPoint presentation available at the FAN website. So awesome. people can hear and read what they say. Awesome. Well, thank you, gentlemen, so, so much. And I hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.